Yeah, so Russ, I have to tell you something. What's going on, Mike? People come to my house. You know, I have like loads of books. I have like thousands of books and also thousands of CDs. Yeah. Now, when people come into my house and they see all the books, they want to move in. They're like, oh, you have all these books. This is really great. You know, there's something about books that make people feel, I don't know, you're in the presence of someone who has culture, let's say, or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> okay. But then they go into the back room where I keep the CDs on all these like racks, you know, mm -hmm. and they see that and then they look at me like I'm a serial killer and try to get out of the house as soon as possible. I don't understand this. What's the difference? I mean, they're both cultural things, but I don't know. People see big record collections or yeah. CD collections, and they think you're a nut. They but do. But books are okay somehow. I don't know. When people walk into the main room of my house yeah. and they see the speakers and the CDs, you know what they ask me? What? Where's the television? Oh. <laughs> I do have a television, though. I, have I like movies, too. rather tiny one placed off to the side because it doesn't get much use. Yeah, I haven't been watching too much TV lately either. I have like a lot of um, also Blu-ray discs and DVDs, but I haven't really been watching movies lately. It's just all, <laughs> all music these days. Music and books is really it now. I don't know. You are a collector of cultural artifacts. I am a collector of cultural artifacts. And not only that, I kind of even more so now because I almost feel like they're going to disappear. Mm. You know, with all this stuff happening, people say, oh, why buy the CD? You can just listen to it online. Yeah, but if it's online, it's in somebody else's hands, and they can delete it if they want. And we've already seen this happen. Yes. You know, especially at movies, or they can even change things, and I don't like that. I like having a record, you know, of something, so. It belongs to you. You know, one day, I don't know, you know, it's going to, Fahrenheit 451 is going to happen, and I'm going to save the world <laughs> with my collections. <laughs> Just remember, make that will out, leave all those discs to me and the books too. If I live to a ripe old age, you'll only have them for a few years, so I don't know. <laughs> This is a dilemma. I don't know who I'm going to leave all this stuff to because I don't yeah. think anybody in my family wants them. <laughs> you know, unless they're going to make a living filling out eBay things, <laughs> selling them one at a time. Anyway, talking about cultural artifacts, this is Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind, where we deal in new classical and jazz recordings, three of each every week. And you hear this week on episode 155. And before wow. we get into this week's content, I want to go back to last week and give a special mm. thanks to saxophonist Lucas Gabrick. We featured his recording, Moving On. He's mm -hmm. originally from Austria, although he's become an internationally active musician. And he shared the episode on both his personal and his artist page on Facebook. So thanks for that, Lucas. Yeah, and also, although I did look up his background, educational and performing, I did not know that he had once been a student of the second artist who was featured, Jim Snedero. Oh. So he was really happy to be featured in a program with his former teacher. Boy, just a coincidence. Right. We just happened to program them together. Yeah. And also, I wrote to uh, Peter DiCarlo, the third artist, mm -hmm. with his recording, uh, The Other Side. That was on Shifting Paradigm Records. And I got a nice reply from him. He checked out the I episode. I saw his note. Yeah. yeah, and enjoyed it. So, thanks, Peter. And we're looking forward to hearing more from him and that fabulous Turkish group that he has playing together with him. Right. Just the fact that we had the former student teacher in the same episode means that we're aligned with something. Things are happening. It seems that I have a bit of a sax addiction because oh. uh, next week we're going to have all sax recordings too. So, And the name of that episode is probably going to be Sax Addiction. Something like that, yeah. Or something like that. We have to, yeah. Not this week though. This week we've got a different program. That's all coming up. But anyway, if you haven't heard last week's recordings, definitely go back and check out those great saxophone recordings in jazz. For this week, 
All the music we're going to discuss, you can find links for in the episode description. That'll be to Spotify and Apple Music. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist, where you can get all of the music in one place on Deezer. They give you CD-quality streaming music from France. They also have the podcast. If you want to listen to us over there, get everything in one place. Now, if you can't see the full description or the recording list and links are not clear on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, please check us out on our host site, podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, where everything is easy to follow. If you enjoy the podcast, follow us, subscribe, tell a music-loving friend, and if you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a short review, that helps us get listed in the recommendations in the music categories, and we get new listeners that way as well. Come over to our Facebook page. You can see our handsome faces, some artist yeah. interaction, and I always put up a bunch of new jazz releases during the week that may or may not get into an episode. Mike actually put up some classical content <laughs> this for, week. for a change, yeah. I had to put up the Owns Bon to Know stuff. Yeah, that's right. That's interesting. Yeah, that was pretty cool. It was an interesting thing. It was interesting for me, too. Yeah. You can leave a message or a comment there. And if you'd like to get in touch with us directly, any other comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We want to also recommend another podcast done by our friends AJ and Johnny. They're over at the Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard Podcast. They look at several versions of the same jazz standard in each episode. They play little cuts from the different versions, talk about the history. You'll learn a lot about history. They'll make you laugh as well, and you get to compare those different versions. There's a link to their podcast in the description, and if you stick around to the end of this episode, you'll hear a little promo from them describing what they do. Just like the Same Difference podcast, we're also going to play samples from the recordings we talk about. And this is our fair use disclaimer. Music sample clips are for commentary and educational purposes. We recommend that listeners listen to the complete recordings, all of which are available on streaming services and the links provided. And we also suggest that if you enjoy the music, you consider purchasing the CDs just like Mike or high quality <laughs> downloads to support the artists. No, absolutely support your artists. I'm all for that. All right. This week, I'm all uh, chamber music, which is really... Oh. It's our favorite kind of classical music, isn't it, Chamber? There's something about it. They're small groups, they're small ensembles, and there's something real more intimate about That's chamber sure. music. Yeah. You know, composers tend to put their more intimate sort of feelings and thoughts into chamber works, whereas in big orchestra works, they're more like big public statements, like you would right. make at a podium or something. So, yeah, especially in the world we live in, it's kind of nice to be able to retreat and kind of hear this chamber music. And we've uh, come up, I think, all winners this week. Yeah. There are three good albums, and two of them, I think, are really fantastic. All right, so the first fantastic one is the Baroque one, as it turns out. This is called The Golden Hour, and it features uh, Lucille Boulanger on the viola da gamba, Simon Pierre on the violin, and Olivier Fortin on the harpsichord. So we have a trio. This is on the Alpha label, and this was released on February 16th. This is the second Baroque album released on Alpha this month that we're talking about, and this one's a big winner, too. So I've got two mm. really great Baroque albums, both on the Alpha label, and I want to talk about this one because I liked it a lot. In this one, the booklet note consists of a conversation with the musicians on the album. So they, they talk about the music and what the uh, theme is. So the golden hour, uh, Lucille Boulanger, the viola da gamba player, says all the works on this album come from the Regency period in France. Now, a regency or a regent is someone who holds the place of the king in between kings. So he rules the nation right. sort of in the king's place until there's a new king. 
So this is a period of political transition between the death of Louis XIV, uh, the Sun King, and the accession of Louis XV. It turns out it was also the period of transition between dominant European musical styles. In France, the viola da gamba was living its final hours of glory, while the violin was beginning to take center stage. And we know how that went, because yeah. uh, of all those Vivaldi works that came later on. So the title, The Golden Hour, stands for those years in which the viol, or the viola da gamba, now approaching the end of its life, coexisted with and even vied with the violin at the dawn of its destiny as a solo instrument. So in France, these instruments came to stand for pure French taste and Italian music, respectively. It was an embodiment of the ideal marriage, which was uh, referred to as the goutte réunie in French, uh-huh. of these two contending instruments and aesthetics to associate the viol, which is a symbol of a certain kind of French modesty. So if we think of uh, Marin Marais' music or um, Saint-Colombe, if you ever saw that movie, Tout le matin du monde, there is a kind of modesty to that instrument. Hmm. With the typically Italian genre of the trio sonata, <laughs> and should I add, and the immodesty, <laughs> okay, although that didn't really exist at the time, the violin was the more flamboyant instrument. All works in this album are reconciliations of the French and Italian styles, so reconciliations of the modest French and more sunny and rhythmic and mm. sprung rhythm Italian style, according to this idea of goutte réunie, reunited tastes. In the end, Arcangelo Corelli made the violin the soloistic instrument we know today, and then Vivaldi and Al Benoni followed him. Uh, most of the works on this album feature the Corelli slow, fast, slow, fast tempo structure, right? right. By the time uh, we reached Vivaldi, it was fast, slow, fast. There were only three movements. But these were all four-movement works, and they were all by French composers who were trying to unite these two styles. And boy, what a success it was, at least in the performances we're given here. Tracks one through four, let's get into this. Jean-Marie Leclerc, Sonata 1, or Sonate 1, in D minor. Opus 4, I really like that in French, like 1 is <laughs> uh, like you're really, you're really feeling it. This is from 1732. First movement, of course, is adagio, slow movement, and the solo harpsichord begins an upward-moving set of chords in this. It has a lovely chiming tone, which we will hear throughout the album, as clearly captured on the recording, too. The violin comes in first melodically with little to no vibrato, and that'll be the case throughout as well. Then at the 55-second mark, we hear the viola da gamba in its higher range, and the two play together. I always like this little trick. Now, if you're at a concert, you can actually see who's playing, but if you're on a recording and you hear like a high instrument, you think it's the violin, but sometimes it's the viola da gamba in its higher range, and I sort of like that effect, and then the violin comes in, and you're like, oh, you're a little surprised. Right. There's a second melodic section beginning at around the minute and 30-second mark, and the piece has yet a third section in the second minute, which has an open cadence that leads to movement two, track two, Allegro ma non troppo. Here the viola da gamba starts this dancey theme, and the violin joins it, and this is going to be my first sample. Let's hear a bit of this. Okay, and there we go. Off to a great mm. start. The movement 
lands on the modest side, as you just heard. It's not really a springy rhythm as played here. It's more of an upbeat theme, and it's absolutely charming and soothing. We're hearing a lively rhythm in a dark-tinged minor key. And also, a lot of the success of this movement, and really this entire album, is the three musicians. Just They seem to always choose these tempos that really, they're just perfect at this. They make the uh, the music really come alive and come through, as you just heard there. Like it's not too excited and uh, bright, but it sounds right. uh, it's really appealing, and we do get the sense of the rhythm. Track three is a largo, another slow section. It starts with the violin and viola playing in unison with a 16th to quarter note hiccup as its identifying feature. See if you could make that out. Let's listen. I even love the way the violin plays that like sighing figure at the end. Da, da, da. And then the yeah. viola da gamba comes in and imitates it perfectly. This is a really great ensemble. And the hiccup, of course, is the da-da-da-da. We don't really expect that. It's a nice movement. This ends also on an open cadence. And on track four, we have movement four, Allegro. It's a cheerful, highly appealing theme. Let's hear this too. You know what I'm thinking? Let's just skip the podcast and listen to this whole album. <laughs> we'll just play the whole thing. Well, listener, you should do that anyway. The movement continues in a perpetual motion rhythm, like a river rushing to the sea, as you heard, and I felt swept along with it. It's charming and uplifting, and an excellent start to this album. We get to the second of our six works on this album, tracks five through eight, Joseph Baudin de Boismortier, Sonata 6 or 6 in D major. Opus 50 from 1736, where it was published that year. Starting with track 5, the slow movement. The violin starts the melody with no vibrato. The viola da gamba accompanies, and the harpsichord plays continuo. The phrases entwine at a leisurely, largo tempo. Let's hear a sample of this opening. Nice. Just want to melt into that. The theme reappears at a minute and five seconds, then we're off to a B section with similar intertwining lines. Then we get to track six, the Allegro, which is faster, still with intertwining lines, which come together at key harmonic moments. The movement keeps up momentum to the end, each melodic line chasing the other. The third movement, track seven, Larghetto, has a Siciliano feel to the rhythm. 
with the violin stating the theme and the viola taking it up afterwards. It's got a lulling quality to it. And then track eight is an allegro, and it has a well-judged speed that conveys a sense of triumph. Let's hear that triumphant speed and theme. At least that's what I'm getting from it. Yeah, I could have been happy living in the Baroque era. <laughs> you know? The major key sounds its brightest here, and phrases are short and declarative, the violin taking the lead. The movement has a rondo form, and the performance is deeply satisfying. Tracks 9 through 12 are the next work, the third work on this album, Louis-Antoine Dornel, a sonata in B minor, opus 3, number 3, published 1713. So we're really, um, you might notice... That we're going over a period of over 50 years in these uh, compositions. That's a long time. Although, <laughs> if we think of our own lives, <laughs> right. what was happening 50 years ago, I think the Beatles had recently broken up, <laughs> something yeah. like that. Anyway, it's, it's not that long, but it is kind of a bit of a, a distance. Anyway, in this piece, um, track nine is a prelude. He has some um, sort of titles for these movements. So the prelude is marked lentement, which is slow, and it has a viola da gamba, playing a rather mournful but very attractive theme at the opening. Let's hear that, a little bit of a Dornel. if you're like me but by now i'm really into this album you know i really i'm enjoying all of it and can't wait to hear the rest got a real sweet sound to it yeah it's got languorous playing in this uh, movement very attractive track 10 the second movement is a fugue marked gay which kind of means lively in a way the fugue makes this seem like an overture because it follows the slow movement with a fugue and overtures used to do that in the french operas and things like that it's fairly quick, with the harpsichord acting as one of the voices rather than as continuo. It's brief at almost one and a half minutes, and then we're off to the third movement, track 11, Lentement et Doux, slowly and sweetly. Another warm, slow movement, this time with double-stopped chords in the violin, or perhaps both instruments playing in harmony. If so, they're perfectly synced here. The movement ends on an open cadence. Again, this is something if you saw them playing, you'd really know what was going on better. So there is a visual component to this. But I do like having my ear sort of tricked like this. Is this one player or two? <laughs> Track 12 is the fourth movement, Chacon, which is sort of a variations movement, shall we say. Marte Gracieuse. And it has a genial theme from the viola de gamba. And the opening line more or less serves as the ostinato that the varied material will play over. It's appealing throughout, and let's hear the opening so we can hear the uh, ostinato line or the theme. Mm-hmm. 
like that little trick too that he uses where the um the viola da gamba plays the the ostinato the theme that we're going to have variations over and then the violin repeats it and as soon as the violin comes in to repeat it the cello just goes off into one <laughs> of the variations it's a nice little trick mm. lots of ear candy in this movement if you're following the variations tracks 13 through 16 jean ferry rebel sonata four or quatre <laughs> e minor <laughs> Livre 2, or the second book, 1713. The first movement is marked gracieusement, or graciously. It starts high in the violin with a brief melodic theme that cadences quickly. Let me just play a sample of that. I should say, by the way, gracieusement isn't gracious. It's with grace. (laughs) (laughs) It would be a better translation. Cadence came in just at the perfect time. All right, so this started high in the violin with a brief melodic theme that cadences quickly. Short phrases are then passed around, and it kind of reminds me of uh, finger food at a party. <laughs> you know, so short and attractive are the themes. You know, so you get these mm. little tiny bits of food there. It's kind of, and they're delicious. Anyway, track 14 is movement two, Vist. I don't even know what that means. It's a quick rising theme that keeps reaching upward until it reaches an unresolved peak. Figuration develops after that, and themes, again, are pretty compact. The 15th track, movement three, recite, and it's marked gay. Now, recite means like a recitative in an opera where an opera character is speaking. So it's going to have a speaking quality to it. The opening is a brooding recitative, so I guess our character has been done wrong somehow. The viola da gamba laments in the low end of the instrument. The next section starts with an ebullient dotted theme, which the viola da gamba plays, and it hands it around between more harmonically clarifying moments. It's still got that darker minor key feel, so we've got energy without the cheerfulness that a major key brings, or let's say without the brightness, like being happy on a cloudy day, I guess. We hear some rapid figuration from the viola da gamba just before the end. Track 16, also marked Vist. This actually has a cheerful lift to it. It's in 6-8, so it has a jig-like lift to the theme. It's very dance-like. It's enjoyable, and sadly, very short. Let's sample this. Those rhythms make you really want to lift those knickerbockered legs, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I like the cheerfulness of this movement put across, and I would have liked it to have been longer. Okay, track 17 through 20. This might have been my favorite work on the album. Francois Francoeur, a sonata 12, or 12, in E major, book 2, from 1733, or the book was published in 1733. Track 17 is the opening movement, Adagio. It's got a pretty and gentle opening, let's sample. 
maybe just before the cadence there, but we were going a little long, so wanted to get out. The viola da gamba comes in with that counter melody, and the phrasing and tone are lovely in both instruments, making the music touching, with the harpsichord adding light comments as well. It's beautifully executed. Notice the just the timing and the shaping of the phrases. They're all just so perfectly done. These musicians have a great feel for this music. Track 18 is uh, the second movement, Corrente, or Courant in this case. This has dance-like phrasing with a built-in pause. I liked this piece a lot, so I'm going to be sampling a lot of the movements here. So let's listen to this one too. Ideas just keep uh, rolling out there. We're mm. heading towards the cadence, though. At 2 minutes and 10 seconds, what sounds like a final cadence is set up, but the movement trickily pauses and then continues on its way. So there's a little um, intellectual interest in this work, too. <laughs> At the 2 minute and 40 second mark, there's another pause, after which the material goes into a slow tempo, reaching a trill, and going on from there without a cadence. This movement has a lot of evaded or false cadences. So we don't have any real resting points in it, but we think we're reaching one. False cadences almost kind of feel like, you know, those movies where you're in the desert and you see the oasis and you get up to it and then you realize, <laughs> oh, it was just a mirage. It's like it's tricked you. We do reach a cadence, though, at 3 minutes and 31 seconds, and then a brief coda brings us to an end. It's a movement worth sampling. You should hear this all the way through. It's pretty interesting. Track 19 is a Sicilian. This is movement 3. Slow Siciliano rhythm, again, with an appealing melody. And this movement plays out over an almost five-minute span. And the melodic ideas in the Siciliano rhythm are all really appealing, with a slinky, inviting quality to them. We hear the opening theme again at the end. And then track 20 is a rondo, and this has a genial theme, unwinding over three phrases, and the third completing the first two. So the first two are kind of like setting up the third theme. See if you can make this out. Here we go. something appealingly lopsided about that phrase structure, you know, because you expect you hear the two sort of opening bits of the theme, and you expect it to to be mirrored in like two kind of concluding ones. But all of the concluding cadential material is, in the, is packed <laughs> into the, the third theme, and then we just go back to the opening again. The harpsichord gets some phrases in for color as well. It's a pretty complex theme, but Francoeur's compositional magic throughout the movement handles it well makes it stand out. I really liked this piece, Francoise Francoeur, sample that entire work. Tracks 21 through 24, Jean-Marie Leclerc. This is the uh, last work on the album, and it's also the same composer we started with, so he's right. the bread in this sandwich. Sonata 2 in B minor, 
Opus 13 from 1753. I think he's the latest composer also. His two works are the two latest ones. This is the latest work on the album, by the way. The opening is slow and languorous. It's in harmony with the violin more in the spotlight, and the melodies become more compact and song-like as the movement goes on. Let's sample the opening of this movement. I mean, come on, listeners, are you seduced yet? Because I am. (laughs) (laughs) There are some gorgeous themes played in harmony, and that's one of many things that makes this album special. The harmonies meld so perfectly together. There's excellent ensemble work throughout. The second movement is an allegro ma non troppo. This is track 22. The violin starts with short phrases that sound like a fugue theme, and indeed, the other instruments come in with that same theme as in a fugue. This is a sort of follow-the-leader style, reappears throughout the movement, though it's not a fugue, really, because it comes together quite often. Track 23 is a largo. This is the third movement. The violin starts with a muted tone, which then blooms for the second half of the phrase, after the viola da gamba enters. The movement itself ends with an open cadence. And the final track on the album, the fourth movement, track 24, is an allegro. This starts with a dance-like theme, but also comes in in canon, or fugue style, in the viola da gamba. Let's uh, listen to that, and listen to the lower instrument's entry just a little bit in. And there's the cadence that I faded on it. Oh, well. Anyway, the movement does keep moving, though, like that. It has a pleasing lilt to it and proceeds much like the second movement with instruments coming in in canon at times right up to its final cadence. This is an absolutely gorgeous album with performances that ensure that each cadence melts into the ear with deep satisfaction. It really is an ideal balance between French and Italian styles, energetically falling between the French languor and Italian springiness as far as rhythm goes. I loved all six of the works on this album and can't really single out one or two without regretting leaving out at least two others. Although I did say I liked the uh, the fifth one by Francoeur the most. Lucie Boulanger and Simon Pierre have such appealing ways of shaping phrases and achieving just the right tone and tempo that one is entranced throughout and Olivia Fortin on the harpsichord mostly plays continuo but always delights when he comes in occasionally to play a solo line and add melodic color to the strings. This is an album you want to listen to from beginning to end and perhaps on repeat. I really loved it. Much the same feelings about this recording. The string tone is so sweet. The ornaments and the phrasing are really subtle, wonderfully played. There are even a few points of surprising harmonic changes in the uh, Beaumartier that caught my ear. These sudden switches to minor in unexpected places. I was kind of drawn in by those little things as well. I found all the works attractive and sensitively played. 
really beautiful Baroque music. I'm going to keep listening to this one as well. Yeah. Now, you pulled out the sweetness of the string tone, and that's not something we often get out of a viola da gamba, but right. um, Lucie Boulanger manages to pull that quality out. This is really uh, pretty remarkable. All right. So we're going to move on to our second classical album for tonight. Some really heavy hitters in the uh, classical world, Brahms and Schumann. Works for cello and piano, and for Brahms, of course, that's going to mean the two cello sonatas. We have some fairly heavy hitters here, too, in the um, playing these works. Uh, Christian Polterra on the cello, and Ronald Brautigam on the piano. This is on the Beast label. It's an SACD, if you have the SACD. And this came out on February 16th as well. The first three movements are Brahms' first cello sonata in E minor. It has three movements, and the first one is Allegro non troppo, and this begins with a weepy E minor theme, played a bit on the fast side, and comes across as lyrical. Let's sample the opening. to rob you of the descent there, <laughs> gorgeous as it is. It's a beautiful melody and is beautifully shaped by Polterra. The piano gets a chance with the melody and uh, the tone is full enough, but the cello has a much fuller sound on this recording than the piano. The piano is a little bit distant from the mic, but nevertheless, it registers well. The bridge of this sonata movement is heard at a minute and 20 seconds. It's attractive in itself. And at two minutes, a stormy second theme is heard. At 2 minutes and 40 seconds, we get the attractive cadential material. At 3 minutes and 16 seconds, the opening material repeats and is a bit varied in approach by the soloist. Always a good thing. We finally get to the development section in the sixth minute. It starts tamely, but builds up volume and tension quickly, uh, as is Brahms's way, reaching a sort of harmonic wall at the 7 minute and 30 second mark and finally subverting it by starting a different theme. The performers are admirably alert to all of these factors and build up the long line of this movement satisfyingly. At 8 minutes and 50 seconds, the recapitulation begins with the familiar opening theme, heard as it was originally in the cello. A detour in the bridge leads to a repeat of the second theme. The cadential material is played slowly and more deliberately when we hear it again. It's got a satisfying warmth to it, and there's a bit of a coda starting at the 12 minute and 16 second mark keeping the slow melodic feel of the opening cello melody. The cello melodizes right up to the final softly taken cadence, and in uh, Polterra's hands, that's a good thing. It's a really great tone. The second movement, Allegretto Quasi Menuetto, has a highly marked rhythm for the menuet-style movement. The rhythm as played here is on the mechanical side and sort of stylized in this performance, I guess referring back to the menuets of the classical era that Mozart and Haydn wrote their works in. It works well for this work, though. Let's sample that, and you'll hear what I mean.
Yeah, so the, the cello's uh, tone on that, too, kind of gives it a, the theme a ghostly quality as well. Yeah. We get to a more flowing, contrasting theme at the 52-second mark in that A section, the menuet section. And the difference in approach draws that second, more flowing theme out. So it's a big contrast to the more mechanical quality of the opening. And the trio section, the B section, uh, starts at a minute and 38 seconds and has a flowing triplet feel to it. It's probably 6-8, and it's light on its feet with some heartfelt playing by the cello at high points of the melody. At 3 minutes and 45 seconds, we hear the menuet section again. And then we go to the third movement, Allegro. This has a big opening unison statement by the piano and then begins a fugato theme that will be repeated in the cello. The counterpoint eventually stops and the piano takes the thematic lead, with the cello either repeating or commenting on the piano's lines. This is reversed at a minute and 20 seconds when the cello is in the lead. And at 1 minute and 36 seconds, a soft contoured theme is heard. And again, just before the third minute, something new emerges. There are a lot of quick changes of material in this movement, signaled expertly by the duo via slight retards in the playing or slowing down. They build up an impressive head of steam heading towards the ending cadence. There's a brief slowing at the five minute mark, which only leads to a contrasting full speed ahead section that rushes toward an excitingly taken final cadence. So a good performance of this work. Tracks four through eight, Robert Schumann, Brahms's uh, pal, <laughs> I guess you could say. <laughs> Fünf Stück im Volkston, Opus 102 from 1849. So five works in uh, folk tone, I guess you could say. There are um, five movements, and the track four is the first movement, Mit Umur. And then there's a subtitle, Vanitas Vanitatum, in Latin. So... Just to explain, for the romantics, with humor didn't mean joke-like, okay? It meant, rather, the ability to endure the tensions and contradictions of life through ironic or sarcastic observation, uh, whether they were between high art and everyday banality or between the opposing political aspirations of the time. So I would like to encourage everybody to uh, approach the upcoming November American election Mit humor, in in this sense that I just mentioned. The vanity of vanities, vanitas vanitatum, vanity of vanities, is an idea taken from a poem by Goethe called Vanitas Vanitatum Vanitas, in which the idea of vanitas is interpreted as anti-bourgeois and vagabond-like. So in other words, you're not living the normal family life in the house working. <laughs> you're just kind of you know, wandering around the world with no money or whatever and just being free. The opening lines of the poem are, On nothing have I set my heart, hurrah. So in the world I bear my part, hurrah. So he's a happy guy. This piece should be considered in that spirit, according to the notes. And let's see if he could get any of that out of this opening theme here. Let's sample. Figuration just really started catching my ear and wanted to keep going. Anyway, the opening 
sounds a bit uh, fast and actually seems to speed up as we go um, and get more aggressive. All the expression comes through, especially the accent on the end of each phrase. That is those accented uh, three notes. I've noticed musicians are going for faster tempos these days in general. There's an ebullient kind of confidence in the characterization of this movement here. It's boldly played all the way through, and even with some virtuosity from Brautigam in the middle section. There's a nice thump of a pizzicato from the cello on the very last note. Track 5, Movement 2, or the second of the uh, five uh, Stücke, or pieces, works langsam, or slow. A lyrical theme over pretty standard song accompaniment on the piano. The opening is calming, but that doesn't last as a sinister line suddenly appears at the 48 second mark. Nothing can remain calm in the romantic world. The darkness fades into a lullaby-like theme, with the bass taking over the melody as the cello plays counterpoint, and then takes over the theme as the piano counterpoints it. Track 6, Movement 3, or Piece 3, Nicht schnell mit viel Ton zu spielen. This has a flowing theme from the cello, with punctuating brief phrases in accompaniment from the piano. Let's hear that. If only that cello line were something I could pour into my bath water. <laughs> At the one minute mark, there's a new theme, more confident with double stopped melody in the cello. The theme sweetens at the second minute in the cello's upper range, and then we arrive back at the opening theme in the cello. Track seven is movement four, or piece four, Nis Zurash. We're back to a bold, ebullient quality here. At 25 seconds, the theme takes a gliding quality over 16th note accompaniment in the piano. The A section then returns to bring the movement to an end. And then track eight is movement five, or piece five, Stark und Markiert. This has an urgency to its combination of dotted and straight eighth notes phrasing. Here's a little sample of that combination. maintains the energy throughout with some veering away from the theme which returns at the end all right and then tracks 9 through 12 brahms again cello sonata number two in f major opus 99 a piece that i really love and have gotten to know well because a friend of mine uh once played it at a concert so that was really and i think it really sticks in your mind more when you hear a work especially a classical work mm. live anyway the first movement track nine is Allegro Vivace, and this starts with energy. There's a piano chord roll, then the cello is off with the melody, and Polterra and Brautigam make sure there's plenty of energy in the opening, which then slows down for the bridge to the triumphant second theme, 
which is heard at a minute and 10 seconds and a bit before that too. Let me just uh, sample the opening of this. that theme into the, the next bit. Everything is very compact in this movement. It's a fairly short movement too, about eight minutes. The double stopped chords of the cello leading to the repeat, and there's no real cadence, are taken rather subtly and don't stand out here as they have in every other performance I've heard, uh, serving the entire structure. I like the effect. The double stopped chords signal the development section at around 3 minutes and 40 seconds as there's no solid cadence. So when you hear those double stops, you kind of know that you're coming to the end. The cadence doesn't really tell you that unless you're listening really closely. The development section is light in tone and drifts from key to key, picking up energy before suddenly stopping dead at 4 minutes and 35 seconds into a brooding section. This builds up to what we think will be a recapitulation. But there's a detour first, and the recapitulation happens in the fifth minute, sounding like it's already underway. At 6 minutes and 44 seconds, we hear the double-stopped chords, which are followed by a coda that leads to a gentle theme, taking us to the final cadence, where we hear the double-stopped chords gently played before the emphatic ending. Also, another new approach for me, and I was really interested to hear it. I think it sounded really great. Track 10 is the second movement, Adagio Affettuoso, and here Pizzicati and the cello accompany the opening piano theme. Let's hear this. This is really attractive. I liked this. Polterra really uh, varying the tone on those pizzicati, which I also found fascinating. The gentle affettuoso theme morphs into a new theme just after the first minute, and then a new darker section begins at a minute and 32 seconds after a pause. There's some beautifully played gentle moments in this movement in the second minute. In the third minute, the opening pizzicati return, signaling a return of the opening theme, which plays out gently to the end. The third movement, track 11, Allegro Passionato has an active unison piano and cello at the beginning, just short of aggressive, and the piano line is busy and is more on the lyrical side here as opposed to dramatic. Let's sample the opening of this. second theme there at the end. 
The duo is going for musicality over drama in this movement, though drama is implicit in it. There's not much of an edge to the movement, but that's fine. It's enjoyable like this. At the two minute and three second mark, the gentler, more spacious B section begins, not without some agitation appearing at times. The A section is repeated at the end with the same nod toward passion we heard at the beginning. Track 12, the final movement, movement four, Allegro Molto, has a quiet but fairly busy opening, almost whispered out of the cello, who plays over busy piano accompaniment. The piano gets the solo section in the second minute and really displays a bit of virtuosity with this material. This sort of rondo movement is rather quick and is over almost before you know it, compact as it is at just under four minutes in length. So this is a pretty compact work at the end. So I have to say, what a pleasure it was to hear these famous works again. It had, it's been a while for me. These are highly commendable performances and made me feel all warm and fuzzy inside, I guess because I have a lot of memories of especially the two Brahms cello sonatas from my younger years. The interpretations uh, stray just enough from mainstream interpretations to draw your ear and make you wonder how this duo's approach will pay off. It turns out that they draw contrast out of these works and their abundant musicality, but at the expense of drama, though that's there too. Uh, we need to listen to that in the harmonic shifts without the musicians underlining them. That's where the drama is, in other words. The performances are comfortable to listen to and remain interesting throughout the album. So while not an all-time great set of interpretations for me, they are eminently listenable and enjoyable. As a big fan of all cello music, I have a yeah. few versions of these, and I listen to these you know, quite often. So I found the Brahms works performed really expressively and passionately here, although I noticed, as you mentioned, the interpretation is a little bit different, especially in the first Brahms sonata from what I listen to most often, which I think is a recording by Mikhail Kanka and Ivan Klansky. And wow. so I noticed the tempo's a little bit different uh, from what I'm used to, but I enjoyed it. And uh, the Schumann was also really enjoyable for the contrasts of really spirited passages, and then it gets more placid and flowing. So I like the contrast they brought out. And uh, yeah, wonderful warm cello tone, voice-like, and yeah, really nice recording. Add this to your cello collection for sure. Yeah, now at the beginning of this um, podcast, I mentioned that we were doing chamber music, and I really should have more said chamber music featuring the cello or cello-like right. instruments in the uh, viola da gamba in the opening one. So our final album in classical music tonight is called uh, Path to the Moon, and this features the cello and piano, Laura van der Heiden on the cello, and Jams Coleman on piano. They're both, I believe, Dutch, and I'm, <laughs> I don't, I'm really bad at pronouncing Dutch things, so <laughs> I hope I got close to those pronunciations of those names. Anyway, this is on the Chandos label, and this was released on February 16th. Now, last week, we talked about another chamber album of released by Chandos called um, A Room of Her Own, which featured all women composers, and right. that was a real winner, I thought. They were fantastic works, beautifully played. And we're getting something similar here. This is a really fantastically played album. So the program is anchored by three important 20th century cello sonatas, 
by Debussy, and that one's pretty famous. By Benjamin Britten, fairly famous, especially because uh, Rostropovich gave the uh, premiere with Britten. Hmm. And George Walker, an American composer who died only recently in 2018, though his cello sonata was written before Benjamin Britten's. Now, Walker's works, he's kind of like Florence Price. He's a, well, he's a black American composer, and his music has recently been rediscovered. And I think his music is very interesting. I'm I've enjoyed what I've heard so far. There was a recording of his five symphonias um, released last year, and you could do a search for that and find it. They're all well worth hearing. Anyway, since the sound of the cello has long been compared to the human voice, songs are included on this album to echo that sentiment. The songs are interspersed throughout the sonatas, and of course they're played by the cello, not with a vocalist. And we start with a song. Eric Wolfgang Korngold, early 20th century child prodigy who composed great works although he didn't really become a really famous composer and it's a real shame for many reasons but this is his work his song schönste nacht beautiful night opus 36 number 25 from 1946 this is a duet for voices and piano from die stumme serenade which means the silent serenade it's from that operetta and it's one of Korngold's last stage works it has spacious yearningness in the opening of the song, which has a late, you could say dying, romantic feel to it. It's very lyrical and exposes the song-like qualities of the cello well. Korngold had a real way with melodies. He was a really mm-hmm. great melodist, and it's worth getting to know his works. Uh, the piano gets a yearning solo in the second minute. We're in the hands of two highly lyrical performers here, and this work comes off perfectly. Tracks two through four are our first sonata. This is the George Walker sonata, so we just get to this right away. It's an A minor. It was composed in 1957. Walker once said that his musical heroes included Debussy, Hindemith, and Stravinsky. Hints of all three can be heard in this, nonetheless, very original work. Walker was African-American, and he includes elements of spirituals and jazz in this work as well. He studied at the Curtis Institute... And his teachers were pretty uh, impressive. Rudolf Serkin for piano, William Primrose and Gregor Piatigorsky for chamber music, and Samuel Barber for composition. Mm. <laughs> These are all names that we know if we know anything about uh, American classical music, or even European classical music for that matter. He also studied with Nadia Boulanger in France. Man, some people just have all the connections. I don't know. <laughs> but that's quite a pedigree. Anyway, track two is the first movement, Allegro Passionato. This starts with staccato piano line that reminds me of a train rhythm. Uh, The cello plays a melodic theme over this. Let's hear this really interesting opening. Some nice subtle rhythmic changes in that uh, piano line, Mm. too. That's just the first uh, 30 seconds. There's a bridge to the second theme with rising motifs. Then the second theme is heard at the one-minute mark at the start of double stops in the cello. It's gentle, and once it ends, stormy, fortissimo piano lines suddenly intrude. The cello is more histrionic after this. 
The development begins with a soft bass rumble in the piano and equally whispered lines in the cello, with discrete harmonics thrown in. At 4 minutes and 51 seconds, the clacking train rhythm reappears for the recapitulation in the piano. Easy to identify, because it's just got such a special rhythmic quality to it. The cello sounds more urgent than the repeat of the theme. The second double-stop theme has transformed too, sounding more anxious. The fortissimo cadential theme leads to a coda, which decrescendos until there's a pause. Then we end with a big build-up to the final cadence. The movement is compact and solidly constructed, and appealing too. Track 3, which is movement 2, marked sostenuto, starts with a single bass note on the piano, sustaining and introducing the melodic cello melody. The winding cello lines end in a new key, giving the feeling of new perspectives. At 1 minute and 50 second, a brooding section in the lower range of both instruments begins. This climbs and suddenly stops, leading to a pause. It comes out of this with the melodic material from the beginning, again with the last note introducing a new key. It's an interesting seed idea that plays out effectively. The movement is mostly sparse and mysterious. Then we get to the uh, final third and third movement. This is track four, Allegro, moving to presto. It has a fugal exposition that gives way to a jazz-like section, according to the notes. Jazz-like, let's say. The fugal section starts in unison with pizzicati in the cello, which then starts rapidly bowed material. At the 43-second mark, we get jazzy figures in both instruments. This is a pretty aggressive section. The jazz figures don't amount to an overall jazz sound. They're sort of like pieces put together to make up an odd puzzle. I kind of think of Picasso's Cubist paintings here, maybe. Let's sample a little bit of that section of the uh, work. This is from 2 minutes and 25 seconds. So at the opening of that uh, sample, you could hear like the piano playing these jazz figures that aren't played in any kind of jazz rhythm. So you guys, you have to <laughs> sort of hear in to identify them. It's an interesting approach. At about the three minute mark, the jazzy section is abandoned and we get, we actually heard a bit of that and we get a sprint to the end. Track five, Lily Boulanger, a composer that we've been hearing quite a bit of lately. It's nice to hear that her music is really being taken up by a lot of um, performers. This is her song Reflet, or Reflections, in F-sharp minor for voice and piano from 1911. Of course, instead of a voice, we're going to hear a cello here. It starts with an arpeggiated piano that's harp-like in its spread with a gorgeously poignant cello melody. This works well in this arrangement. At a minute and 35 seconds is a pretty chiming section in the piano, beautifully realized on this recording by Jams Coleman. Let's sample that.
All right. Now, if you're driving a truck on the expressway, I'm sorry you couldn't <laughs> hear that, but it really is beautiful. Why don't you pull over and just give that a listen? It's really great. Or just go to the link and hear the whole uh, composition. The cello line ends on a high note, sounding unresolved. It's up to the piano to bring the piece to a sense of rest. Track six, Florence Price, another composer, African-American, whose music is really making a big uh, comeback. This is her song, Night. And I have to say, I really enjoy these a lot, these uh, shorter compositions of hers. From 1946, it's in C major for voice and piano, arranged for cello and piano by Tom Poster. This has a throaty cello sound low in the instrument's range, with the piano playing straight accompaniment via rocking chords. It has a romantic feel to it in the arrangement. It's to the point and beautiful melodically. I'd like to hear this with a voice, actually. I bet it'd be a really enjoyable song. Track 7, Benjamin Britten, Sonetto 30 in G major from 1940. This is number 3 from Seven Sonnets of Michelangelo for tenor and piano. So we heard um, the composer... Um, Jean Leleu's approach to these uh, Michelangelo sonnets last week, and we're not going to hear a voice this week, but Britton actually set these as well. So this has a very lightly charming piano chord providing a bed for the twisting melody. The piano eventually starts commenting on the melody via arpeggiated patterns and grabs attention eventually. This song has some interesting twists of harmony in it. It ends quietly with a hint of mystery still in the air. All right, and this leads into our second of the three cello sonatas on this album, Benjamin Britten's Sonata in C Major, Opus 65, written in 1960 to 1961. And the solo cello part is by Mieczysław Rostropovich. I'm not really sure if he wrote it or if he adjusted it. It doesn't really say. But this was written for a performance Britten gave with Rostropovich at the Alderberg Festival in 1961. It's a festival that Britten himself founded. The five movements make it seem more of a sweet than a traditional sonata, and the language is lean and athletic. Yes. So the first movement is marked dialogue, or dialogo. This is track eight. And it starts with a whispering cello tone with piano chords filling in the space between phrases. It's a very hesitant movement, and after intriguing chord and pause at 40 seconds, the music really explodes. Okay, I'm going to make up for all you uh, people on the highway. Let's, let's hear that <laughs> explosion. Now, Britton and Rostropovich are really great at uh, characterizing their music, and especially Britton when he was playing his own compositions. Composers are, have a real way of pulling out a lot of hidden things. So that performance is probably unsurpassable. But this is pretty great, I think. I think this is really pretty dramatic playing. At a minute and 27 seconds, you just heard a little bit of it there. There's a sudden change to a lyrical line, and then we're back to the opening hesitant whispering material. The cello produces some great tones during these segments. Another outburst like the one following the opening, followed by more lyrical material. It sounds like a repeat of the opening section, but leaves us more than halfway through the movement. We hear some throaty staccato outbursts from the cello in the development. I'm guessing this is a sonata form movement, really. Great tone throughout by Laura van der Heiden. And at the end, the recap features the piano playing the piano's hesitant opening theme in the high end of the piano, 
while the cello bows an ostinato pattern. A great throaty tone from the cello in the bottom notes throughout this movement. You know, that's a word I'm going to use a lot for this piece, the cello's low tone. She's getting a lot of really fantastic sounds out of her instrument on this piece. The second movement, Scherzo Pizzicato, this is track nine, marked Allegretto. It's a brief movement starting with quiet yet vibrant toned pizzicati from the cello. I want to mention the piano is excellent throughout as well. I've been pulling the cello out a lot, but the cello really is drawing my ear. This duo plays well together. I like the piano's sparkling high note figuration after the 42nd mark. I'm going to sample that, and those of you in a quiet place may not be able to pick this up, but let's hear it anyway. beautiful playing and characterization by Jams Coleman there. Yeah. There's a brief middle section taken by the piano, followed by the piano imitating the cello line. This movement is full of interesting sonorities from both instruments. Next is uh, movement three, which is track 10, Elegia. Lento. Elegia is an elegy. So it has funereal tolling chords on the piano at the opening, the atmosphere well set, and the cello has a straightforward legato melody. The cello line ends in a lightly moaning low-end phrase. The new section starts at around a minute and 40 seconds with eighth notes turning to triplets and then sixteenth notes. This increasing of note value speed ends in a trilling harmony in the piano. Kind of reminds me of Beethoven's um, you know, last piano sonata, how that ends. The note values just mm. keep getting faster and faster until the end you just have a trill. Here, though, the bass is stomping out tolling sounds at the end, and the cello is keening back and forth between two notes. From here, there's a long decrescendo. Piano chords and a cello melody reappear afterwards to end the movement on a tonic. Track 11 is movement 4, Marcia, which means a march. This has a powerful outburst by the cello as the piano plays the aggressive marching theme, and we're going to hear this one from the beginning. Let's listen to this. really does have an like an ironic kind of uh, 20th century quality to it. It reminds me of similar approaches by Shostakovich and um, Prokofiev. At a minute and 20 seconds, there's a great sound played sul ponticello, or possibly behind the bridge. It's so severe on the cello. And like the second movement, this one is full of intriguing sonorities on both instruments, but particularly the cello. It ends suddenly and without a resolve. And then we go to movement five, track 12, Moto Perpetuo. Presto, moto perpetual means perpetual motion. There's going to be no pausing in the rhythm. The cello plays the perpetual line, bouncing the bow off the cello, and this movement really moves. Let's get a sample of this. Mm-hmm. 
you hear the athleticism of that cello line, and you just know it was written for someone of the caliber <laughs> of Rostropovich. And um, I have to say that van der Heiden acquits herself exceptionally well. She gets a really clean sound out of that. You can make out like each note and figure out the note value from what she plays. That's pretty impressive. This movement is played with high energy throughout its brief two-and-a-half-minute duration and ends on a strong final tonic. Track 13, we're back to some songs. This one is by uh, Claude Debussy, Bossoir, a pretty famous song by him. It's in E major for voice and piano, and it was arranged in the 1920s for cello and piano by Alexander Gretschaninov. Now, the 1920s, Debussy had already died. Gentle and song-like, the piano very much in an accompanimental role here. The cello plays with a gorgeous legato, with a light touch befitting the melody. Track 14, Gabriel Fauré, Claire de Lune, Opus 46, number 2. No, not that Claire de Lune. It's a different melody, and it sets a poem by the same name. This is in B-flat minor from Du Melody for voice and piano, and has a rather lightly played, chattering piano line. The cello finally comes in after the 32nd mark. The tone has more sincerity here in its fullness than in the previous track. I like the way each of these songs are given a different character by the duo. Each stands out as written in a unique style. Track 15 through 17, the third of our three cello sonatas, this one by Claude Debussy, and I love this work so much. It's a D minor, written in 1915. This sonata fits the program theme because it was originally going to have the title uh, Pierrot Angry with the Moon, and uh, Debussy just decided not to use the title. By the way, most of the um, songs on this album have evening or moonlight type themes to them, and hence the title of the album. Path to the Moon. I should have mentioned that at the beginning. Track 15 is the prologue, marked Lant. The cello's entry bursts out of the texture here, and I'm not sure what I think of this. It's usually hidden, and I like that I can hear its first attack. The rest is beautifully balanced, as we would expect. It's an interpretation that draws out contrast between sections. The chiming chords at 2 minutes and 18 seconds are magnificent, and thankfully don't drown out the cello. It's uh, beautifully realized. The quiet ending is breathy on the cello and registers beautifully. I liked the thin tone the cello employs on the last note of the movement. I really enjoyed this interpretation, and I'm going to sample it from in a little bit. This is from about the uh, three-minute mark. hear that i'm sure <laughs> anyway the second movement serenade or night song has an interesting interpretation i liked the way the cello draws out the bends in the pizzicato at the beginning the cello plays the pizzicati strongly throughout by a minute and 48 seconds the tempo starts moving quickly and the cello articulates its quick silver changes perfectly i'm going to go to the minute and 48 second mark of this to uh sample Thank you. 
So that's about five themes or five sections of this movement crammed into those 30 seconds that you just heard. It's a work like that. The finale, I love this too. I'm happy at how audible the cello's notes are at the beginning because this is a really triumphant sounding opening. I really love this energy here. Let's listen to the opening of the third movement. to a new section. A very slippery work. The melody at 18 seconds that we just heard is taken at a fast speed and sounds momentarily sunny, but the weather keeps changing in this late Debussy chamber work. Each change of character registers beautifully. It's one of the better interpretations I've heard of the work, and I'll be returning to it. Track 18 is a song by Toru Takamitsu, Japanese composer, 1930-1996. It's called Will Tomorrow, I Wonder, Be Cloudy or Clear? And this was written at around 1992, which is really the end of Takamitsu's life. It's in B-flat major, and it was for chorus originally. Then it was arranged for voice and piano by Henning Braul, and then performed with cello and piano here from that arrangement. It has a music box piano sound at the beginning, with a theatrical feeling of regret to it. Oh, the Japanese do regret really well. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a theme of this culture. That's... I think that's behind the whole of cherry blossom viewing because they come off the trees very early and then you have that that sad feeling that that beauty is gone now. There's nothing Japanese or Takamitsu like at all really about this straightforward musical theater like song. Uh, it's lovely indicating Takamitsu could have been a Broadway musical composer during the golden age of American song. It's really that appealing. Mm. Track 19. Now, this is credited to Nina Simone. It's This is the tune Everyone's Gone to the Moon, which he sang from 1965, and I think she recorded it in 1969. The original song was released in 1965. It was written by uh, Jonathan King, and he recorded it for voice and piano. It was recorded for voice and piano by Nina Simone in 1969, so four years later. And here's transcribed for uh, cello and piano by our pianist, Yams Coleman. The notes say that Jonathan King was not only the original singer, but the composer as well, so it's a little confusing. Mm. Uh, when you look at uh, Chandos's um, sort of composer listing. He performed it as vocalist on Top of the Pops in 1965 while he was still an undergraduate at the University of Cambridge. The Nina Simone version appeared on her album Nina Simone and Piano. It has an exclamation point at the end. As well as being a vocalist, uh, Simone was also a pianist and sometimes student at the Juilliard School. You learn something new every day. The piano's theme has a bit of figurative detail in it. The cello melody is heartfelt, and this is really played in a straightforward musical theater sort of way. I have to confess I'm not familiar with the Nina Simone version of this song. It fits in well with the Takamitsu, both coming across as beautifully memorable as well as unusual for these artists. By the end, there are big chords and gushing melodic lines, and there's a big emphatic final chord. Let's uh, sample a little bit of this, maybe from the 1 minute and 40 second mark. So this is around the middle of the song.
Okay, now final track on the album is, if you're going to have an album that has the word moon in the title, how are you going to leave Debussy's Claire de Lune, the famous piano piece, <laughs> off of it? We hear it here, arranged for cello and piano. The cello part was arranged by Ferdinando Ronchini in 1925, again, after Debussy's death. And the piano part was arranged by uh, Alexandra Rollins in 1924. So this famous solo piano piece is here arranged for cello and piano, and it works well to have the melody isolated on the cello. We get more of a sense of its legato quality. Evander Haydn plays the opening lines with a hush and really doesn't sing out with her tone in this piece, not even in the main melodic section of the piece heard starting just before the two-minute mark. The performance comes across as understated, I think, I think I would have liked more volume from the cello during the high points of tension of the piece in the second minute, but it's certainly an enjoyable interpretation. It's got a little bit of that midnight sort of hush to it. You could listen to this late at night. So I have to say, Chandos is coming up with real winners this winter. We had Room of Her Own last week, and uh, here we have another chamber music album that kept my attention throughout. The playing on this album is excellent and as are the interpretations, and that's a real pleasure given that the program is so interesting too. It mixes sonatas with songs and more famous works with little known ones. This album provides an ideal way to get familiar with George Walker's sonata, and the Britain and Debussy sonatas are vividly characterized. The songs are all beautifully played and arranged. Laura van der Heiden's cello playing stands out at points for vivid tone, getting throaty in the low ends, a sound that I really enjoy hearing and singing with fine legato in the songs. It's odd that the final track features such a light cello tone, though I would have liked more there. I like Jams Coleman for his more gentle moments, sprinkling out figuration in the high ends of the piano. This is an enjoyable program all the way through, extremely well played, with the duo putting its own stamp on most of the works. An intriguing program with playing that puts each work across in the best light, and that's saying a lot for the George Walker work you need a good performance for a work that people aren't familiar with, and I think the George Walker work gets that here. Fine cello and piano playing throughout. I enjoyed that in the cello tone. It's all about the program, which is really interestingly put together and well thought out. I, I was thinking of it kind of like this huge multi-course meal you would <laughs> have at a banquet. It, it starts with the sweet appetizer <laughs> right at the beginning, and then it gets a little bit more chewy, I found the Walker piece very moody and you know constantly yeah. changing. Then you get a nice palate cleanse with the price before you mm. get to the really toughest meat and spiciest <laughs> with the Briton. You know, that's you kind to, of you a, have to really chew on that one. Chewy one. <laughs> but then there's multiple dessert courses at the end with all these songs and the final Debussy, you know. So. I actually thought the opening corn gold was a dessert course too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they just put it first. It's a very tasty appetizer. So yeah, it takes you through a variety of moods and then gives you a little bit of break with you know easier sounds and it's all around this moon theme too, which is pretty interesting as a concept as well. And I think it's an interesting way to experience all this great cello music. And there we go for classical. Let's head on to jazz. Over to the jazz side, and we've got some interesting recordings as always this week. Mm. We're going to start out with a group recording called Pasillions. I think that's how you say it. it looks good to me. Yeah, and the <laughs> name of the recording is Next Morning. It's on Bopcat Records. It came out February 23rd, and well, these are not musicians who are unfamiliar to us. They are actually the same musicians we heard on the pianist's recording. That's Peter Garifus 
and his recording, Reaching North, was a recording we talked about two years ago on episode 54 called Pianorama. Wow, that's 100 episodes ago. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I got in touch with Peter again last month when I saw that he was friends with Armin Yambor on Facebook after unsuccessfully trying to contact Armin for information on his uh, recording that we featured in an episode of a little bit back, Budapest Bopin. And they had become friends while studying together in Graz, and they also shared an apartment. And so Peter got me in touch with him, and then he also let me know that this recording, his new recording, was coming out soon, so I was waiting to feature that, and here we are. And these are the same musicians here that we heard before. That's Sami Liponiemi on tenor sax, Peter Garifus on piano, Nathan Francis on bass, and Alexi Heinola on drums, recording, mixing, and mastering done by Alexis Raivio. Here's a quote from Peter about this recording. The process of recording this album was very special for me because we decided to play in the same studio room. This created a more intimate and creative environment where we could listen to and react to each other's ideas in a deeper way, like we were playing a concert. I think that's really important on recordings, you know, rather than being isolated in the studio, you get a lot more energy into the performances and it's a more kind of natural performance like so i was happy to hear that that's how they made this and i think it shows up in the music so the recording starts out with a garifus original next morning that's the title track of the album and the drums kick it in and the boppy melody starts with a rising g dominant scale into the swinging 32 measure sunny melody that rising sax line moves around and it comes back like a little hook throughout the tune hey nola accents the syncopated lines nicely and garifus is off into a solo from there let's hear this recording get going Play some sprite lines, triplet figures, and punchy chords along the way. The Poniemi follows with a big toned swinging sax solo, and I like how he varies the phrasing and articulation in his solo. Piano and sax trade a couple rounds of eights with Heinola's drums for some final excitement before another run of the melody, with some final phrase repeats to finish it up. It's an energetic start to the recording. Track two is called Pious Monk. It's from Nathan Francis. This one has a playful melody. There's an eight-measure section of sax figures with cute little turns in them and fun drum hits. Then eight measures of bass and a final four measures of the sax figures. Listen to Garifuss's monk-like chords underneath. Leponiemi is off soloing from there. Let's hear this one get started as well. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, the Poniami keeps the playful spirit, incorporating the melody figures into his solo a bit with some turkey call tones too. And let's hear some of Garifuss's solo that works in some of those figures as well later on in the tune. more through the melody and some final ringing chords from Garifus to finish it up. Track three is a tune from Sami Liponiemi, Mongolia. It's a modal tune. It builds up in eight measure sections, starting with a neat beat from Heinola. Next add bass, then piano, and another round making it syncopated. The modal sax melody comes in for 16 measures, then it's 16 measures of piano. Sax is back for a shorter 14 measure section, then eight of piano, eight of drums, and a four-measure transition to the start of Leponiemi's sax solo. <laughs> Interesting structure there. Let's hear some of his playing on his own tune once it gets going. some bluesy licks among the Mongolian modes there nicely. Garifus has a solo with some fleet lines and snappy rhythms next and he works it back into the syncopated chords section and they take it through the sax, piano, and sax sections of the melody. The ending section is a new piano and bass ostinato vamp. Pretty cool tune. Track four, Jerome Kern's Long Ago and Far Away. That's from the 1944 film musical Cover Girl with Rita Hayworth and Gene Kelly. Hmm. Garifus makes a classy solo piano intro for eight measures, and Liponiemi is in on the lightly swinging melody. It's a 32-measure structure that I guess you could call an ABAC pattern. Liponiemi has a relaxed solo with nice use of space, and Garifus's solo keeps the relaxed flow, but has some fun tumbling figures and a few darting lines. They get back to the melody with a few repeats of a phrase before an ending of some neat descending chords from Garifus. Track 5, Beatrice. 
This is uh, Sam Rivers, the saxophonist's tune from his 1964 Fuchsia Swing Song album. The original is a soft ballad at a moderate tempo, but here they give it a speed-up and rhythmic injection. The rhythm section gets it going with an extended intro with good bass and piano interplay. Let's hear it from where Liponiemi comes in with the melody. It's a 16-measure construction. Rivers goes around twice on the original recording, but here uh, we only get it once before Liponiemi is off improvising. nice swinging groove they've got going there and Garifus has an exciting solo on this one too so let's jump back in and hear some of what he plays. Okay, back into the rhythmic vamp there to set up the melody again, twice around this time, though sandwiched with some vamping to finish things up. Track 6 is another Peter Gerfuss original, Love From Far Away. This starts with a really lush and pretty solo piano opening from Gerfuss, so let's check that out.
There are little hints of the melody in that opening that Leponiemi takes into the melody with a big gentle tone. It's 24 measures, sounds like ABA form. Gerfus has a solo of lines that float out on their own schedule over the ballad beat. Nice articulation. And Francis has some nice ringing bass underneath all of that. And then he gets his own solo on this tune as well. So let's check out a little bit of the bass solo. for a final time through the melody from there. Really beautiful, gentle playing on this track all around. Track seven, another Gerfus original, All of Who. Rhythmic piano for eight measures, and then once more with bass and drums, the boppy melody played together on piano and sax seems to be around 42 measures with interesting changes in the sections. Parts of it kind of remind me of Miles Davis's Four. Let's have a listen to it get going. Gerfus's solo here is interesting, getting started in shorter phrases and ideas that then gets more connection as the rhythm section gets chugging and swinging along, working up to some percussive chords. Let's hear some of that once it's in real high gear.
follows with a solo swinging with a lot of gusto. Piano and sax trade eights with Heinola's drums before Garfas gets the melody started again, joined by Leponemi from the second section. And the final track, Harold Arlen's Last Night When We Were Young. This was recorded in 1935 by Lawrence Tibbet, and it was cut from his film Metropolitan, but then they performed it instrumentally behind the credits. I always think of this from In the Wee Small Hours, Frank Sinatra's 1955 great recording. That's probably where I know it from, too. Right. Ringing repeated bass notes from Francis get it started to make an interesting atmosphere in the intro. I think this is kind of a unique way of getting this going, so let's check it out. into this tune. And this is the last track, so let's check out one more bit of Peter Garifuss's piano playing on his solo on this tune. Some really nice groove change-ups underneath those piano solo lines as well. Eponiemi has a go next with exciting false fingering phrases on the sax into some final melody and a soft outro to match the beginning. Well, the Pacilians have a good recipe here. Two standards, one done in a new way, a cover of a jazz original from Sam Rivers, reimagined, and engaging originals from Francis Leponiemi and Garifus. It's a nice mix of boppy, ballad, and modal ideas with a variety of rhythmic grooves. The tight interplay and intuitiveness between Heinola and Francis is excellent, and inspired solos all around, especially from Leponiemi and Garifus, whose piano style has grown since we last heard him. It's a very good recording. Yeah, in fact, uh, Peter Garifus's uh, playing really stood out for me on this album, as did uh, Leponiemi's um tone i really liked his right. uh his playing his tone 
Kiarfus goes off on like these really long solos and keeps his energy up and the ideas coming all the time. And I really appreciated that a lot. And um, I like the rasp on Leponyemi's tone on this album. Yeah. So that kept me going. It's got high energy, hard hitting drumming during solos. Always a good thing. I grew up uh, listening to rock and roll. So I like <laughs> hard hitting drummers. It's solid timekeeping too from the drums. Yeah. I'd say this is a high energy album, probably fueled by the enthusiasm of the band. They just all sound great, and they sound like they really want to be doing this. So it's uh, it's infectious that way. Definitely happy to hear more from these musicians, and let's see in another hundred episodes if their next record is out. We'll take a listen to it as well. Yeah. By the way, saying that you've done a hundred podcast episodes gets you the same reaction as it does when people see my CD collection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Walk away. <laughs> yeah, walk away. Get away from this guy. <laughs> All right. Our next recording comes from the Outside and Music label. They sent us a advance on this one, and I've been waiting for it to come out. It's from trombonist Brian Scarborough. It's called We Need the Wind, and it came out February 23rd. Brian Scarborough is a trombonist, composer, and educator in the greater Kansas City area. Performs around Kansas City, leading his own groups, and he's a member of the People's Liberation Big Band of Greater Kansas City, the Boulevard Big Band, and a founding member of Zen Brass. He's appeared also with the Kansas City Jazz Orchestra, the Kansas City Symphony, the Fountain City Brass Band, and he was a member of Kansas City Jazz Orchestra's inaugural Riff Generation Ensemble. And he also plays for musical theater. He has a previous release as a leader from 2020, also on Outside in Music, called Sunflower. But of this new recording, We Need the Wind, Michael Deese, a great trombonist, says, This recording beautifully captures Scarborough's attractive tone and vibrant melodic playing. Coming from Michael Deese, that's a big compliment. This recording from the notes says, Inspired by experiences and emotions felt during the global pandemic. And reflecting upon the state of society and the world at large, this project reflects on my experiences during this deeply troubling time. Scarborough's quote there. Also, We Need the Wind documents my journey through this experience and the healing process personally and artistically. So the album's title, We Need the Wind, is also from the notes, and that of the track from which its name is derived was inspired by an image that came to Scarborough's mind while musing on the intricacies of the COVID and post-COVID society. The idea that struck Scarborough was that of prayer flags. Rooted in the Buddhist tradition, practitioners believe that as the wind blows the flags, it carries with it the mantras, blessings, and petitions to wherever the breeze may take them. Hmm. Image for you. Also, the imagery of this concept is carried further and visually represented through the album artwork, which was, like on Scarborough's previous album, designed and crafted by his aunt, Patricia Scarborough. The lines in the artwork represent the various colors of the prayer flags, which then blend and mix in the wind. And just coincidentally, our next recording after this one also has artwork created by a relative of the artist. Hmm. So there's your special <laughs> coincidence of this episode. Wow. On this recording, Brian Scarborough on trombone and all compositions, Matt Otto on tenor sax, Roger Wilder, Fender Rhodes, Jeff Harshbarker on bass, and Brian Stever on drums. The recording gets underway with Broken. 
When the tune starts, it kind of feels like it's in four, or at least I thought. Scarborough has a four measure opening, and then Otto joins in for another four measures. They move off on a ten measure harmonized melody, but then it's clear that it's in a six eight feel from the cymbal subdivisions. Let's hear the tune get going. Scarborough's up first for a solo. He has a really wide and warm tone and gets into some agile slide work and interesting rhythmic figures. So let's jump ahead and hear some of that solo. solo next, also with weaving lines and a mix of rhythmic ideas, and Stever has nice drum fills below. The horns are back for the melody sections and a little extended ending with a final line. It's a very flowing, introspective tune. Track 2 is called 3E, and the notes say it was inspired by a Zoom call during the pandemic with Scarborough's former roommate in Chicago, and 3E was the apartment number. Hmm. This one has a fun weaving melody, it's an AABA 32 measure form, but it develops interestingly. The first section is unison trombone and sax, then the repeat gets bass and drums added. Rhodes joins in from the B section that also gets swinging for a bit with walking bass. Let's hear this one get going. Thank you. 
Wilder's up first for Rhodes solo. Scarborough follows. His phrases have a kind of conversational feel to them in the intervals and rising and falling lines. And Otto has a sax solo next, starting with an easy, bluesy feel. So let's hear what he has to say on this tune. to the melody from there with everybody in and check out the fun Rhodes chord injections from Wilder when the ending melody section. I thought it was going to end but Stever gets some drum solo time with horn figures added to spur him on to the end. Track 3 is the title track, We Need the Wind. This gets started with a sparse and mysterious Rhodes 16 measure introduction that gets joined by light cymbals and ringing bass. The horns are in on the 16 measure legato melody that repeats and develops with harmonization. Let's hear that melody once it comes in almost 30 seconds into the song. Harshbarger has an extended melodic bass solo from there that digs in more as it goes along, and Otto follows with a sax solo, and then Scarborough with some lines that soar higher and show his agility. Otto then joins him for an abbreviated 16 measures of the melody that has final phrase repeats to some soft roads and bass to end it. Track 4 is The Long Road Back. This is a very slow ballad that shows off Scarborough's warm tone. He has the pickup into the melody that gets lightly harmonized from Otto's tenor sax. It seems to be 16 measures with a final four measures like the opening that gets Scarborough started on a solo. The slow tempo allows him to work out interesting ideas kind of floating in a free space. Harshbarger has a bass solo here too, working down in the low register and then up high with great tone. The horns are back with the melody to an ending of repeated halting Rhodes chords. 
Track five is called Strange Bird, and Harshbarger gets it started out with some solo bluesy bass working into a loping ostinato, setting up an eight-beat pattern. It feels like six, eight, plus two, and this is really cool, so we've got to hear some of this. on that for a bit before the horn melody that is low in register and has a neat lazy bluesiness to it Wilder gets to space out on the roads for a fun extended solo on this tune so let's jump back in and hear some of that sound I should say that uh, the podcast comes out finally in mono format, so you really need to hear this in stereo to hear that oscillating left and right roads going around in your head there. In headphones, it's even cooler. Yeah. Well, the horns have some extended, playful, simultaneous improvisations weaving outside the harmonies. Harshbarger keeps the ostinato rolling for Stever to get some drum improvisations going, and the Rhodes is back into the vamp, bringing in the horn melody once again to finish up the tune with some final improvised lines over the ostinato. Track 6 is One of One. This tune has a good swinging bounce to it, starting with an 8-measure rhythm section intro into a melody of changing horn harmonization over 18 measures. Scarborough really swings and digs in on his solo here, so let's hear some of it later on in the tune. Thank you. 
was up next there as Stever dissolves the beat into some toms and cymbal fills over washy roads for some free space. Alto has some fun trilly figures and then the bouncy groove returns for the end of his solo into the final melody section and some final horn improvisations. Track 7 is called Central Standard Time. This tune is super fast and swinging. There's a 16-measure syncopated rhythm section intro, and the 28-measure horn melody is super tight with some stopping surprises along the way. Let's check it out. Scarborough's off on an exciting solo of tricky slide work. Now let's jump back in and hear a bit more of it. And I want you to notice his great phrasing even at this super high speed. is next on a busy and bubbly road solo and the horns are back for a final run through the melody. Track 8, Sevens, it's a waltzing tune. The title refers to the 28 measure melody that is made up of a repeating seven measure phrase with evolving harmonization in the horns. Auto solos first, starting out silky and working into searching lines. It comes down quiet over just roads for Scarborough to get his solo going. Bass and drums rejoin the waltz as Scarborough's lines reach higher and longer. Harshbarger has a bass solo with some speedy finger work, and Stever gets to do some drumming over piano and bass chord cycling until the horns return with the melody. And the final track, number nine, is The Way It's Supposed to Be. A syncopated and tricky 40-measure melody on this one keeps you guessing at what's going to happen next. Let's hear some of it.
Scarborough solo first on this one with relaxed feel even in his speediest lines. And let's hear one more sax solo from Otto on this tune. get some time on the roads with a rhythmic solo and the horns are back for a final go through the tune. It's an overall mellow recording with a unique atmosphere of warmth created by the great Rhodes sound throughout and sharing the melodies on the warm tones of Scarborough's trombone and Otto's sax. Scarborough's tunes are introspective with distinctive melodies in a variety of structures and rhythmic feels. His trombone playing is first rate with great technique, range, and an overall sense of making it all seem easy and that big warm tone. Otto works nice harmonies on the melody lines and has interesting solos of his own. Wilder's Rhodes solos are cool, bringing out the charm in the sound of the instrument, and Harshbarger has quite a few solo spots to shine in. And Stever gets a few moments on the drums and provides tasty fills throughout. All the tunes match the mood and concept of working out the COVID experience and getting on with life. It's a very nice recording. Yeah, a lot of people use that uh, COVID uh, theme. Yeah. It's really funny because it was such a unique sort of um, experience. Everybody had something new to say, but yeah. then they all wound up saying the same thing because we all experienced more or less the same thing, which is kind of funny. But no, I thought, you know, that's not the case with this album, really. This is a really good, it's a pretty fairly quiet album, like you said. And I think that's because of the mellow tones of the trombone and the Fender Rhodes piano. Right. And you hear the Fender Rhodes throughout, usually, like, you'll often hear... Piano One or two tunes, switch yeah. between, yeah. So it's been a while since we heard of Fender Rhodes on this podcast. Do you remember when the last time was? Uh, it may have been Dave Kakoski. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, that's right. He put, that's a long time ago, too. That was like... It's uh, a bit back, yeah. Yeah, that was like two albums ago for him, or mm-hmm. maybe more. He's on a lot of records. <laughs> Hearing a Fender Rhodes on the album really kind of lifted my spirits. I kind of liked the, hmm. the sound of it in jazz. I'm not really a big fan of it in 70s pop music, I think. <laughs> I heard those songs too many times. The trombone and Fender Rhodes have timbres and attacks that are soft at the edges and kind of make you sit back rather than sit up, you know? And the musicians seem to have picked up on that quality and uh, arranged the program accordingly, in my opinion, anyway. The album in its entirety gave me a bit of a late-night stoner vibe. You know? <laughs> and especially track five, Strange Bird, which was the oddest composition on the album, I thought. Right. Track 7, Central Standard Time, uh, has some movement to it, but it's mostly in an odd, dark sort of mid-to-slow tempo, the album, that is. Interesting low-key ideas are heard throughout, and an al- when I say low-key, I mean like nothing dramatic, really. Mm-hmm. It, it's an album with a lot of subtlety to it, too, I thought. So yeah. I think a late-night listener, you're kind of, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe you're under the influence of some kind of like uh, 
bourbon or something like that, and you're just kind of noticing these little details. It's really enjoyable. Maybe now. you want to have a sip of your absinthe with this one, Mike. Oh, yeah. I might I might be getting a little crazy with that. I might have to get an absinthe spoon. <laughs> what can you use an absinthe spoon for? Only for <laughs> absinthe, right? Boy. I'm not so sure. All right, and our final jazz recording of the week is by guitarist Randy Napoleon. The door is open. The music of Greg Hill. It's on OA2 Records. Napoleon was born in Brooklyn, New York. His family moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan when he was two years old, and he studied violin before coming to guitar. He's also toured with the Freddie Cole Quartet, Benny Green, and the Clayton Hamilton Jazz Orchestra. And then after going to New York to work for more than a decade, he returned to Michigan in 2014. He's an associate professor and associate director of jazz studies in the College of Music at Michigan State University. Well, Lansing, Michigan is really a center for a lot of jazz activity that we've heard on the podcast. Michael Deese, Jim Alfredson, Rodney Whitaker, and of course, composer Greg Hill. Now, we've discussed three recordings of Hill's music so far, and it's always something I find both interestingly familiar and unique at the same time. Back in episode 91, called Low String Theory, we talked about Rodney Whitaker's recording, Oasis, the music of Greg Hill. That was also on Origin. And that was his third recording of Hill's compositions. Then in episode 110, Baroque and Bones, we talked mm. about Michael Deese's The Other Shoe, the music of Greg Hill on Origin. Then back in episode 127, Something in the Ether, we talked about the Technocats, the music of Greg Hill. That was on Greg's label, Cold Plunge Records. Now, interestingly... Mike really liked this uh, Technocats recording, and he wanted to have a copy of it on CD, so you decided to uh, try to order it from the U.S. because it's not easy to get in Japan. Well, that's the only way you could do it. You can only get it through his website on a CD. I mean, you can hear it anywhere. So anyway, I wrote. I didn't. I should have written to him through the Adult Music website, but I wrote to him through my personal, um, you know, email account, and uh, he graciously volunteered to, uh, you know, just send the uh, CD and then charge me for the shipping later. <laughs> Thankfully, I had the sense to say, um, you should probably let me know how much the shipping is, because often it's like the same or more than the CD. And it turned out that it was exorbitantly expensive, <laughs> so I couldn't order it. And once again, my brother at Fast Science Staten Island, Richard Vizzuto, came through and uh, let me deliver it to his house. And then he sent it on, because it was free shipping if you sent it in the United States. So right. he's in the U.S. And then he sent it to us, and now we have these CDs. And, yeah, there's yeah. more to the story. CDs, got, you ordered one, but he sent I ordered two. two. two because that was one for you. I was oh, okay, gonna, you ordered yeah. two. I did and, order uh, one for you. We also got uh, the bonus of two CDs yeah. of Randy Napoleon's recording. That was a big surprise. Greg he follows us on Facebook, although we haven't contacted him directly, but I took this kind gesture as a suggestion that we talk about this new recording as well. Yeah, I have no problem doing that. So, <laughs> so if you're listening, Greg Hill, thank you very much for yeah. these CDs. In the notes for the recording, it says, the composition of this music is a true collaboration. Greg sends me scores with very little instruction to allow maximum freedom of interpretation. He is profoundly trusting. I use his themes almost as writing prompts. They inspire introductions, bass lines, reharmonization, development, and counterpoint. So we're going to see this as kind of a collaborative construction of Hill's compositions and then Napoleon's arrangements, and let's see what comes out of that. So on this recording, we've got Randy Napoleon on guitar, 
Aubrey Johnson, a voice that we heard with uh, June Ida back in episode 150. That was music a la modo on Ida's recording Evergreen, also on OA2. And we kind of enjoyed the atmosphere her vocalese makes on a recording. Rick Rowe on piano. Rodney Whitaker on bass on most of the tracks. And we've got uh, Lucas Lafave on the other tracks. I'll point those out. And he's someone who studied with Rodney Whitaker, and he was called in when Whitaker was stuck on the East Coast for the first studio day because of an airline problem. So mm. the show must go on, as they say. Luckily, they were able to get Lafavian on the rest of the tracks. Quincy Davis on drums, Anthony Stanko on trumpet, and he's also on the faculty at Michigan State, and another faculty member on tenor sax, Walter Blanding, and... Andrew Kim on trombone, a student of Michael Deese at Michigan mm. State. He's only 19 years old on this recording date. Mike. Wow. So, yeah, what a big debut. All the music is composed by Greg Hill and arranged by Randy Napoleon. And I'll point out on the certain tracks where the lyrics are written by Randy Napoleon and Aubrey Johnson and some just by Napoleon himself. It's produced by Greg Hill and Randy Napoleon, recorded at Troubadour Recording Studios. Engineered, mixed, and mastered by Corey de Ruscia, and it was recorded on June 27th and 28th, 2023. And on the CD packaging, it says that the cover art is Randy as a Boy, and it's entitled I Am a Little Wolverine, painted by his grandmother, Faye Kleinman, who was an internationally recognized painter in oil and mixed media works. So be sure to have a look at that very personal artwork for this recording and also the previous recording. Kind of neat to have someone in your family who could uh, provide artwork. <laughs> it's, it's really convenient, too, if you happen to be a musician. <laughs> really yeah. Or a podcaster, for that matter. <laughs> All right, the recording gets underway with the lost tune. Here the lyrics are by Napoleon and Johnson. It starts out with just guitar, piano, and bass. Napoleon plays the eight-measure melody line, which repeats... Then drums join in with a Latin beat, and the bass gets busy for a four-measure transition to Johnson's vocals, coming in following the melody line we heard on guitar. There's an eight-measure guitar interlude before a new eight-measure vocal line, like a bridge section. Let's hear it from where the rhythm picks up so you can get a sample of her vocals and also Napoleon's warm guitar sound. After that lifting vocal section, Napoleon is off on an extended solo that starts over the rhythmic four-measure transition we heard before. 
His playing is fluid, but with an interesting mix of rhythmic ideas and an ending of cool double stops. So let's jump back in and hear a little bit more of that. a piano solo there next with a nice touch and clean articulation on springy rhythmic figures napoleon and johnson add some backing lines together at the end of the solo before she's back with more vocals with a sparser setting of dancing cymbals rather than a drum beat to start it works up intensity as napoleon gets some more harmonically daring ideas to work out into a rhythmic synced up figure with johnson's vocalese to end it a nice airy atmosphere and arrangement on this tune track two the door is open, the title track. It's in three-quarter time. There's an eight-measure rhythm section intro before the 26-measure melody that is doubled on guitar and Johnson's vocalese. The horns are in on this one and have interesting interjections into the syncopated flow of the melody. Let's hear it get started. is up there for an intense sax solo over the ominous bass figure vamp that starts out that section. It gets more loping in feel and transforms into a minor 12-bar blues form. I really like his gutsy sax tone. Napoleon follows with a solo that has cool hesitation and interesting two-note figures explored throughout the lines that work into a chord solo backed by vocalization. And Whitaker is on bass on this tune, and he gets a bluesy bass solo on this one. So let's check him out on this minor blues progression.
work through the melody again with a coda ending that builds tension with drum fills and a final rising vocal and guitar line. Track three is Escape to Cat Island, and this is a really happy sounding tune. Now, I personally wouldn't be happy on an island full of cats. Yeah, but, neither would I. <laughs> but anyway, a fine Latin beat, eight measure intro from Davis on the drums before the melody. It's an AABA 34 measure form. It's got two extra measures on the last section. The melody is tripled up with vocalese, guitar, and trumpet on the A sections, which is switched with the sax on the B and has cute little turns in the lines. Let's check it out. solos first and you'll notice that he has a lot of creative techniques that make each solo distinctive and Stanko has a trumpet solo on this tune his only one on the recording so let's hear that for a sample a little bit later to the melody from there, there's a new section of syncopated ensemble lines that push into some drum solo breaks from Davis, and then another A section into a final new line that has syncopated push to the ending. That's one of the things I like about Hill's music, and here in Napoleon's arrangements as well. There are unexpected new things that pop <laughs> up in the form and arrangement all the time. You can just keep finding little interesting things like that. Track four, Motel Blues. And this has lyrics by Randy Napoleon. Maybe it's a lament about a musician's life on the road. Or interestingly, although Hill didn't write these lyrics, the notes say that Hill was once a professional truck driver. Wow. <laughs> and also CFO of a major tech company. Hmm. Those are really different jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting life uh, he's led. Yeah. There's an eight measure rhythm section intro with a slow but rollicking piano riff and a break for Napoleon to pick up into a round of 12 bar minor blues. Another break into Johnson joining in with some lyrics over the 12 bar form. Next, there's a measure drum break before a new nine measure section that repeats the motel blues line into a guitar solo from Napoleon. Let's join in on the break 
into the vocals and hear some of it from there. will join in for some backing lines from his third chorus of pearly bluesy licks and Lucas Lafave is on bass on this tune and rocks out a great unexpected bowed bass solo on this mm. tune which is really cool so I think we should hear that as well form with added horn lines and then a chorus with Johnson's lyrics added into the drum break and motel blues section with tasty guitar licks all ending up on a surprise pickerty cadence or a final major chord. Track five, spontaneity. That's spa, S-P-A hyphen, teneity. This is a unique one. Napoleon gets it going with some really dense rhythmic chord figures that the rest of the rhythm section joins in on halfway through the eight-measure intro. Johnson is in with the lyrics, which I assume are written by Hill for this track, for a 16-measure section. Then there's a four-measure interlude where the clicky even beat changes up to a swing over loping walking bass with guitar figures and more four-measure exchanges into some interesting stop timelines with guitar and lyrics in unison. We won't get that far, but let's check out this interesting beginning. Don't we? 
The opening guitar idea comes back to some more stop time, then the swing is back for some scat singing from Johnson on this tune, so let's check out what she does here. Another stop time section transitions to an exciting piano solo from Rowe. Napoleon gets a solo too, and the tempo change that happens here makes me sit up every time I listen to this recording. It's really cool. I don't think I've ever played three samples from <laughs> one tune, but I just want you to hear how neat this is when it kicks up and it really gets your attention. really cool and really hard to do. Mm. Things are really swinging from there. A stop time section brings it back to the original tempo and the alternating four measure sections from earlier in the tune and a couple final stop time sections with guitar and vocals doubled to end it. There's a lot going on in this tune and arrangement. Track six, April Song. This is a gentle and pretty slow tempo tune with a longing minor mood. It starts with two measures of piano. Napoleon comes in for an eight measure section of melody figures reminiscent of My Funny Valentine. Bass and drums join in with the next section that has vocalizations from Johnson. These sections repeat a little shorter at the end for Napoleon to get started on a guitar solo of sweet licks with little bluesy tastes. Rowe has a piano solo as well, showing off a classy light touch with some chiming ideas, and Whitaker has a big-toned bass solo that gets some more drive in the beat from Davis's brushes and hi-hat. The ending is the two melody section ideas that we heard alternating earlier, but this time vocals and guitar work together to the end with a nice final chord sequence over bowed bass. Track 7, The Last Pop Tune. I don't know about this being a pop tune, but there's some interesting things happening here. The tune starts out with an even beat and some syncopated piano chords in four measure section that alternates with another four measure section of guitar and vocal exchanges. Things move on with more exchanges of ideas and then get swinging after a minute into a guitar solo from Napoleon. Let's check it out and I'll let it play a bit long into the swing transition. Thank you. 
Now, Rowe has a piano solo after Napoleon, so let's hear some of his speedy lines on the piano in this tune. some unison guitar and vocalese lines from there that work back to the alternating sections from the beginning to make an ending with a surprising jangly chord from Napoleon. Track 8, Skyline, lyrics by Napoleon on this one. This has a charming rubato guitar and vocalese opening. Then the drums kick it into a really surprising swinging section broken up by rising staccato figures and a sudden return to a rubato mood with just guitar and Johnson on the lyrics. Let's hear it from where the drums come in about 30 seconds in so you can hear those transitions. figures idea return to bring in a solo from Napoleon that gets backing horn and vocal lines in a fun arrangement and 19 year old Andrew Kim gets his moment on this tune with a very impressive trombone solo so let's hear that sacks permanently if uh, if uh, young Kim gets uh, too much better here. That's the beginning of an illustrious career right there. Yeah, You heard it here first. 
We'll row get some sparkling piano soloing with the horns and vocalese backing before a final short ending section, another tune that keeps you in suspense right to the end. And the recording wraps up with triple play. This tune has a few changes in personality in it. There's a slow, heavy rock beat. Two measure horn figures alternate with guitar and vocalese figures. Two piano exchanges break up that pattern. And suddenly the heavy beat is gone and a music box piano with legato horn lines make an interlude before the beat is back for some guitar and vocalese soloing with horns layering in. Uh, let's just hear a sample from the sunshiny section into the return of the beat to get an idea of what this tune is like. One more similar interlude before the beat returns and we get alternating sections like the beginning with some added licks and trills from Napoleon to a sudden ending. And that's the album. As with all of the previous recordings of Hill's music, I found this recording engaging on both emotional and intellectual levels. This time, with Napoleon's added arrangements, lyrics, and interpretations, it still results in unexpected developments throughout the compositions, keeping your attention through the whole album. There are lots of different rhythmic feels, swing, rock, Latin. Unexpected harmonies and changes in form are balanced out with familiar structures like the blues to make things comfortable and challenging at the same time. The recording has an overall airy feel to it, a lot of which comes from the soaring vocalese of Aubrey Johnson, whose lines are woven in with the guitar and horns. Napoleon's guitar playing is rich, toned, and inventive. All his solos have something unique in them. There are lots of other solo spots to savor too, from each of the horn players, Rose Tasty Piano Playing, and both Whitaker and Lafave's basses. You should definitely hear this recording, and I'm looking forward to the next recording of Greg Hill's music whenever it comes out. Actually, I think he'd be someone really interesting to interview on the podcast. Yeah, we should try to set that up. We'll yeah, I'd see. like to know more about the mind behind this interesting music. Yeah, really, before we started this podcast back in uh, 2021, 150 plus episodes ago, <laughs> uh, Greg Hill was a composer I was totally unfamiliar with. I didn't, hmm. I didn't know anything about him, and now... Uh, we've covered several albums with his music, and it's like more familiar. And it's a name I'll remember now, too, really just because it's one of the legacies for me of this podcast. These are all solid compositions, as you said, and they're surprising in a lot of places. The album itself is well-produced, with everyone coming up sounding full-toned and shiny. I enjoyed Randy Napoleon's, you know, full guitar tone. Warm and inviting, and he solos in a highly melodic way. And Aubrey Johnson's got a clear sunny voice and that only adds class to the album i thought i really yeah. like that piano was glittery in his solos very appealing and greg hill's compositions are interesting enough to fill out 
entire albums. <laughs> I'm always happy to listen to one. It's really yeah. amazing. Great composer out there. I'd like to know more about him too. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of unique, you know, to have people recording full albums of yeah. one person's music. So right, I'm intrigued. Right. Yeah. Let's yeah. see if we can make that happen. Maybe we'll do that. All right. And that's going to wrap up episode 155. As always, thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo and express delivery of CDs yes, from the U.S. That was amazing. Thanks, Richard. They came through. <laughs> Remember to check out The Same Difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast. Their promo will be coming up after this. And what do you have lined up for episode 156, Mike? Next week I have all, I think, orchestral stuff. There's a new recording on uh, Warner. It's actually Arato. Giovanni Solima sort of putting together some a new composition out of uh, I think a viola line from Vivaldi one of Vivaldi's cello concertos that oh, he cool. never completed and some Baroque there and then I've got uh, you know this year I didn't even know this is uh, Biedrich Smetana's uh, 200th anniversary of his oh, I saw birth that. so it's yeah. so it's I didn't know that actually <laughs> so I guess the uh, what do you call it, the powers that be the uh, cultural uh, informers there haven't been uh, doing their job effectively enough but there's a new recording uh, by Semyon Bishkov of um, Smetana's Mavlast. And I haven't heard this work since, like, after college, maybe in my right. 20s. I mean, I heard the old Raphael Kubelik album, and I figured, okay, I'm all set. So I'm kind of excited to hear that. And then we've got some violin concertos by Brahms and Ferruccio Busoni, and I've never heard his violin concerto before, so oh, looking forward to that. All orchestral stuff next week. Right. In a sense, if you count the Vivaldi as orchestral. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I'm going back to sax just because those were the recordings that just came out that I wanted to hear most. We're going right. to hear the new one on Positone from Willie Morris. We heard his debut before, and we'll check out. He's here again with Patrick Cornelius. We've got Boris Kozlov and Rudy Royston, John Davis on piano on this one. And we're going to check out a Barry and tenor sax paired sax recording from David Larson and Daryl Yokely. And then another recording with uh, alto sax, Michael Thomas's Illusion of Choice on Criss Cross. So if you want to find out more about all those recordings, get listening to them early. As always, the podcast episode playlist will be up on Deezer a few hours after this is published. And you can get a link to that from our Facebook page as well. I did a lot of cello this month, too. I think it's our second really <laughs> yeah. heavy cello episode. So there you go. Just go with what's coming out. Go with what's coming out and whatever you know you're going to enjoy talking about the most. Mm. All right. So we'll look forward to that next week for episode 156. Have a good week and keep listening. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you. Thank you.